0: Hello and welcome to Aid Talks. Aid Talks aims to discuss the most pressing issues on aid and development cooperation today and the critical issues surrounding it. Aid Talks is presented by Reality of Aid and AidWatch.
1: So good afternoon from Manila. Thank you so much for attending our webinar. The fragile case of COVID 19. I'm Sarah, the coordinator of uh, Reality of Aid Asia Pacific, and together with our partner and also member, AidWatch Australia, we would like to express our solidarity with the rest of the world who are struggling to survive this crisis. So we're all in this together. We hope that you're coping well and keeping yourselves physically healthy and mentally strong. So, um, we, as we've all experienced by now, this pandemic reveals how volatile not only our healthcare systems, but more so our economic and social systems. So today, we'd like to dig deeper into the effects of this crisis in conflict-affected fragile states, particularly those in Asia-Pacific. And um, we'd like to know what the responses of aid agencies are and how we as civil society organizations can contribute to the development, to um, the furthering development cooperation. So, before I jump into uh, some reminders in the program, I'd like to introduce our partner, Aid Bush Australia, Nat. Yeah, really happy to be
0: uh, co-hosting with um, Sarah from Reality Aid Asia Pacific. This is the first, hopefully, in a series of webinars um, under the name of Aid Talks.
1: Thank you, Nat. So, um, let's start with our first speaker. I'll be introducing the speakers one after the other and they will be presenting for just 10 minutes each. And after all four have presented, we will proceed to the Q&A or open forum session. So the first is Erwin Loy, the New Humanitarian's Asia editor based in Bangkok. He has reported on news in Asia for the past decade after joining TNH in 2017. The New Humanitarian is an independent newsroom with the role of chronicling the changing nature of and response to humanitarian crisis. So
2: over to you, Erwin. Uh, thanks, Sarah. Um, and thanks for that introduction. So I guess I can skip the first line that I would uh, made a note of. Um, so you know, as, as Sarah said, we, we do cover crises around the world, and that includes conflicts in so-called fragile states that stand to be hit the hardest from the pandemic, uh, both directly and indirectly. And so I, I'd like to focus on some of the indirect impacts um, as well because i think that's you know the the bigger repercussion down the line beyond the obvious immediate threat of the virus itself um so one way or the other the coronavirus is affecting you know every corner of the world as we all know um whether or not there are outbreaks in those countries and it's exposing the the inequality of the pandemic and so i think you know this notion that we're all in this together um is you know i think quite common and in many ways we are but in many ways we're not um i don't think we were all in this together in in, you know january or february when the outbreak was at its height in china and hitting other countries here in asia um you know the rest of the world had time to prepare then but it seemed like much of the discussion uh revolved around sort of shutting borders or you know thinking about chinese diets rather than how to get you know your own countries ready and now in april we're all faced with this pandemic but i think you just have to look at what refugees and people who are displaced and people who live in cramped urban centers are facing. You know, the coronavirus is not this equalizer. I think, you know, we all have the luxury of isolating ourselves to to some degree and most do not. Um, So obviously that's the case for people in countries, um, many people in countries facing conflict. Um, You know, I think of places like Afghanistan, where there's been decades of war, uh, 14 million people facing emergency or crisis levels of of food insecurity even before the virus. Uh, 10,000 civilians killed or injured last year, uh, same as the year before, you know, hundreds of thousands of of refugees or or migrants return each year, and many of them have nowhere to go, and that's all before the virus. Uh, I think of countries like Myanmar, um, which also had decades of conflict and displacement. Uh, I think more than 300, 350,000 people living in ca- displacement camps within the country and thousands more are displaced who aren't counted in that number. Um, you know, you have open warfare ongoing and getting worse, including in Rakhine State in the West. And um, incidentally, uh, we have a story coming out later today looking at coronavirus preparedness in rebel-held territories in, in Myanmar beyond the reach of the government. So please look out for that if you're interested. Um, And of course, uh, across the border in Bangladesh, where there's nearly one million Rohingya refugees, most live in these tiny, cramped bamboo or tarpaulin tents. So, you know, what does social distancing mean to them? Uh, It's pretty much impossible there. Uh, And in the southern Philippines, you have conflict, you know, on top of frequent disasters, uh, month by month, year on year. Uh, In Mindanao in the south, you have people that are still displaced by previous conflicts and previous storms and previous floods. Um, So you know there's the direct threat posed by the virus itself, and that will obviously be really difficult to contain in these sorts of environments. Uh, But I think what we're already seeing are the knock-on effects uh, in in the countries that we cover, how the coronavirus is impacting economies, livelihoods, and existing aid in areas that are already facing crises. Um, So I think the most obvious examples that come to mind are, are health effects from preventable diseases like polio and measles and cholera, um, you know, in many places, you have polio vaccination campaigns that were suspended, uh, including in, in Mindanao in the Philippines, because of the fear that health workers might inadvertently, you know, spread the coronavirus while going about their rounds. Um, you know, this is at a time when polio eradication was really struggling around the world. And, and in many ways, it was making a comeback of sorts in several countries, including in the Philippines. Um, and if we're still talking about, you know, countries facing crises, um, I think the end effect is sort of moving everyone one rung down the ladder in terms of vulnerability to withstand a disaster or withstand the everyday shocks that life brings. And that could add to the humanitarian emergencies of tomorrow. Uh, For example, we've seen in countries with large migrant workforces or urban poor in South Asia, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, uh, millions of people put out of work overnight by lockdowns, minimal social safety nets. Um, and, you know, there, there are communities already facing long-term trends of droughts or disasters fueling migration, and that was getting worse year on year. You know, families that live season to season, dependent on a harvest, they're now, you know, just a little bit less likely to withstand the next hit. So I think these sort of indirect economic impacts makes it, you know, much harder to withstand. And, you know, there are many connected reasons that push people to migrate. But the coronavirus now potentially adds another down the line It's just one of many potential ingredients, you know, adding to this sort of these sort of trends. Um, And so speaking of migration, I guess I'll add something else. Um, I wanted to talk about migration and social divisions. Uh, We see in Europe um, and elsewhere, some countries are pushing through kind of hardline migration policies um, in light of COVID-19. Uh, citing COVID-19, but these are the sorts of policies that are likely to stay in place long after an outbreak um, ends. Uh, Think of European countries shutting ports to rescued migrants on the Mediterranean. Uh, Last week in Malaysia, Rohingya boat pushbacks, uh, where hundreds of people were stranded at sea, and there might still be a few more boats out there. Um, And even in Bangladesh's camps, uh, the Rohingya camps, I think the coronavirus has become another wedge issue between the refugees and the host communities, and that can be dangerous down the line. So I think the longer this lasts, the coronavirus can drive marginalized communities like refugees and migrants even further toward the margins and exacerbate these sorts of ethnic divisions that have long existed. Uh, We see a bit of that already. You know, in India, Muslims have been kind of singled out and accused for helping to spread the virus allegedly um, now, so down the line, if coronavirus forces communities to compete for resources and compete for healthcare and compete for aid, what's the end result of that? Um, but I do think there's a, a flip side too to that question. You know, one thing I'm interested in is how big disasters play a role, a small role, in ending conflict. You know, it's rare, but there are examples. A frequent example is, you know, the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami and the effect that had on the the end of the conflict in Indonesia's Aceh. Um, now, with the coronavirus, we've seen, you know, a lot of many pushes for ceasefires throughout the globe. So I think it's an interesting question, you know, in what scenarios can a pandemic be an ingredient for peace? Um, but of course, you know, that that's probably overly optimistic. I think we've already seen um, a lot of these ceasefires already broken, including in Libya, where a ceasefire lasted about a day, I think. Um, so I think that brings, uh, brings us to the next point, um, you know, how are humanitarian groups responding to the pandemic now? Um, I think the interesting thing is it's forcing the aid sector to wrestle with some ethical questions. Um, you know, first of all, the early one was what risk do aid workers pose um, themselves? You know, in every country, I think you know, many foreign staffers have decided to leave. Many others have stayed. Uh, and I know that's a continuing discussion among um, aid groups internally, and it's sort of a controversial discussion among some aid workers, especially for those who decide to leave. Um, I think there are already spillover impacts on on every humanitarian crisis that we cover from lockdowns, from movement restrictions. Um, It's something that we're watching. Every Thursday, we put out a weekly update, just kind of what we're tracking and little things that are building. Uh, You know, one example in Bangladesh's camps, there's been a massive reduction in services available. They've scaled back services to non-essential services. And, you know, part of that is understandable, trying to reduce the risk of spreading the virus inadvertently. But there are reports that gender-based violence is on the rise in the camps, and you know, uh, that was gender-based violence services were seen as non-essential. What are the long-term implications of that? Obviously, I think many people would agree that that could be an essential service. Um, and I think another ethical question down the line, you know, were there uh, shortages of protective gear, protective equipment, PPE, uh, everywhere, obviously? Um, will humanitarian staff be forced to compete with frontline health workers for protective equipment, I think that's that's a big consideration for some, and just in general, there are, you know the resources are are stretched to a large degree. Um, the UN put out a two billion dollar appeal for the coronavirus alone, but humanitarian needs before the virus have been going up for years. So, simply, it's just not sustainable. And I think the last question on that is, what happens when the next big disaster hits? I think you know international staffers are used to getting on a plane and jumping into action when a big cyclone or earthquake happens. Right now, that's not really possible. And we saw some of these discussions take place this month when Cyclone Herald uh, tore through parts of the Pacific, including Vanuatu, Fiji, and Tonga. Um, and But that also leads to a potential opportunity, I think, which is locally-led responses. So that's the last thing I wanted to, to talk about right now. I think this, in some ways, is really an opportunity for the aid sector to shift the way it works from a system that is driven by donors and driven by international organizations and international staff to one that is more driven by locals kind of living on the ground where disasters actually hit. Um, in the humanitarian sector, this is, there's, this is called localization. It's this big promise uh, most aid groups made five years ago to shift power and funding to local responders. That's been quite slow. It hasn't really happened yet. Um, there have been small changes, but I think the same, the, the, the aid sector works in essentially the same way now. Um, and that's caused a lot of frustrations. Today, with the pandemic, I think most international aid groups are talking about localizing responses in the time of coronavirus, and it's written all over this $2 billion appeal. So will that actually happen? Um, I think there are big question marks, but it's something that uh, I'll be interested in watching. I think a lot of local responders will be interested in watching um, on the ground where disasters hit. Um, I think it's been more or less 10 minutes, so I'll end it there for now.
1: Thank you so much, Erwin. Um, there are important questions raised in that insight uh, regarding the disaster-ending conflict, um, aid and ethical questions, localization of um, of aid programs. No? And I think one good input also is on how coronavirus is actually not a great equalizer, especially for our um, marginalized communities. So, uh, again, for those who have questions, please click on the Q&A box below, um, and if you also have comments or additions to Irwin's input. So, I, I, I feel that some of the questions may be answered by our next uh, panelist. Ciprian Fab is a Conflict and Fragility Advisor at the OECD, or the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. So prior to joining the OECD, he also led the European Commission's Eco Regional Office for West Africa in 2009, where he worked on linking emergency, resilience, building, and development programming. He then joined the OECD in 2016 to work on the Development Assistance Committee or the DACS engagement in fragile and crisis and conflict contexts, where he also wrote policy into action guidelines series and lives in crisis to help translate policy commitments into better programming in crisis. So over to you, Ciprian.
3: Thank you very much for, for that and, and thank you for um, uh, giving the opportunity to uh, to, to talk about, about that. So the, the OECD's role, if you want, uh, is, is to help the member of the uh, of the Development Assistance Committee, the, the main bilateral donors, if you want, uh, to uh, to engage more efficiently in, in fragile and, and conflict affected countries. So, uh, COVID is not a conflict, of course, but it's not an enemy with a willing a strategy to harm. But but it is a crisis, um, and, and it is a. a a big one because it, it collides—the spread of the virus collides with the way we are organized as a, as a societies. And as with most crises, um, the most uh, fragile countries and the most vulnerable people are hit uh, harder. And um, it, it, it's, it's a way, uh, maybe, where where we want to, uh, to to start and where we were. The, the first observation that we have is that the more fragile. Uh, a, a country is the latest, it, it was affected by, uh, by the spread of the virus and, and the more a country was connected with the world uh, economy, and China and Europe for that matter, uh, and uh, earlier it, it reported cases and, and we have uh, in our website, we, I will send a link maybe through the chat, um, uh, a chart that shows that very well. And this lag um, gave some time to, uh, to some of fragile countries to, to prepare. Uh, and in fact, um, the government of the 58 fragile countries that the OECD have in, in, in our fragility framework have uh, implemented some, some sort of, of measure to curb the spread of the virus. But, and it includes a, a partial or, or complete lockdown for 19 countries of, of them. So you had preparation, and so far the pandemic has not exploded in the most uh, fragile countries the way it had in, in, in Europe or the u s for instance, possibly because of of those measures, possibly because of a younger population, possibly because of of less reporting, of course, and probably a, a bit of of all those factors we don't know really, but what we know, which is absolutely sure is that uh, the, the pandemic highlights and then deepens uh, inequalities. And it's really the core of that. And it does so in many ways. You have inequalities related to uh, to health, uh, uh, direct access to health, whose uh, health systems are mainly weak in the most fragile countries. COVID requires uh, hospital, treatments, but the, the poorest in the, remote, the most remote places don't have much access to, to health. I system are not able to, to, to absorb the shocks in, in those contexts. Uh, when you have, for instance, 98% of, of, uh, of, of uh, poor countries or poor developing countries uh, facing um, staff shortage. Just to give you an example, in sub-Saharan Africa, you have 0.2 doctors uh, per thousand inhabitants, compared to four uh, in uh, OECD uh, average. And the same applies, of course, to any, uh, any uh, public services. You have inequalities for confinement, uh, social measures, because social distancing uh, in populated suburbs is, is, not, uh, is just not possible. Um, you have the rising risk of, of domestic violence. It has increased already in in some or or developed countries. We have rising uh, domestic violence in in France, where I am, for instance. Uh, But you have also a a securitization of of the enforcement of confinement measure, um, which adds an additional risk um, in some countries. The army has been mobilized. Um, to support the, the police to enforce the, uh, the confinement which, which creates a, a real uh, inequality uh, here as well you have uh, inequality on, on violence so we've discussed a bit uh, discussed a bit about, about the link with peace you you had uh, on each crisis uh, has an effect on uh, on on Peace, Um, you had some uh, easing tensions. Um, Sometimes it it happens, it's rare, but it happens. You had, for instance, the uh, Emirates who gave uh, uh, medical assistance to Iran uh, at the beginning of the crisis. Uh, You had fragile ceasefires, um, uh, that was said already. But the biggest crisis, I mean, Libya, uh, Syria, Yemen are still ongoing, they are still raging uh, with uh, with, uh, with the flow of, of refugees or, or displaced people uh, still going on. But peacekeeping missions are affected. Um, most of the uh, UN peacekeeping missions are now in uh, protection modes, protection force mode. Uh, it it, it affects also uh, humanitarian aid delivery. Uh, we've said that already. Um, it restricts, the pandemic restricts the, um, the delivery of humanitarian aid. Uh, just for those we need it most uh, at the moment. So uh, you have also this concern about the possibility of aid workers importing the virus in many countries in Africa at the moment, but probably uh, elsewhere as well. You have a real um, you have real difficulties for 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 expatriates to uh, to work and uh, and to be accepted. So it, it's also a call for a genuine localization um, of aid. Um, which, which has been promoted for four years since, since the World Humanitarian Summit, but without much effect. So maybe it's a time to uh, to, to really go for it, um, even though it has some complication from the donor side. But I would say that the uh, most critical point is inequalities on livelihood and and poverty, um, because if you for for those who live in, in the informal sector. Uh, but to some extent, even in the formal sector of the economy, um, if you have no money, you have no in daily income, uh, so no food. So um, um, that's really for 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 that aspect is is critical. And and the World Bank's projection um, this month su- suggests that the pandemic will uh, will cause the first increase in global poverty since '98. Um, they expect that around fifty million people will be pushed into extreme poverty. Um, just to give you a, so, some figure a survey that was that was done this month in, in Bangladesh uh, that was just released say that uh, the income in March um, was down by seventy five percent for some of the respondents and even more in some, uh, in some uh, rural areas. Uh, on average, people had just eight days of food stored at home and fourteen percent of them didn 't have stored uh, at all so so you, you see it 's really on on the income and, uh, and, and the poverty uh, and the poverty aspect um, that will have the biggest impact on the long term. It will have impact on on governance as well because when a crisis occur. You, you naturally turn to your governments to uh, to help and, and and help manage a crisis, but governance system in, in fragile contexts uh, will be uh, will be, will come under great stress and under great pressure um, It may be uh, reshaping some of the uh, link with civil society organization or faith based organization who will take an increased role in, in that. If, if, we, if we talk about the long-term, the long-term, uh, the long-term issue, if you want, uh, we, we will say that uh, the economic and, and livelihood is certainly one of the most critical uh, ones. So what to do? We hear uh, many calls on uh, international uh, scene to, uh, for humanitarian assistance and, and of course to respond to the, uh, to the UN, uh, the 2 billion UN uh, response plan. And we hear many calls for, for, for donors to help support um, health system in, in, those, uh, in, in those contexts, in the most fragile context where, where the needs are, are the most striking. But um, strengthening health system in, in, in isolation uh, won't work because health, weak health system are not weak in isolation, it's, it's system. So it's linked with all, all the uh, lack of uh, of, of governance, it's a lack of uh, prioritization over the last decades for for many countries, in many countries. Sorry. Um, so, if you want to build a resilient health system, you, you have to address all the uh, dimension of, of the fragility. You have to address political dimension, the economic dimension, societal dimension. So, it's not something that you can uh, you can really uh, you can really build uh, over a couple of uh, months. It's it's a decade long. Um, if you want to, to really work on the, on the long term uh, issue, uh, you have to work on fragility and the whole dimension of fragility, but you have also to work on, on the economic and livelihood and then to support a lot of, of social protection. And you have ways to link um, emergency cash transfer, for instance, with social protection. You have a lot of, of that has been done in some, in some contexts. Uh, but definitely this is one of the priorities that we see uh, because most countries have a relatively low level of, of social protection. The, the level of the cover of social protection in, in a most uh fragile context is below 13%. Um, and it will not be sufficient to uh to, to, to cope. So um we without social protection measure. Um, the effect of the uh, of the COVID nineteen uh, will be relatively, will be absolutely dramatic for, for for the most vulnerable, and and this is where uh, the, the most countries and, and all of us need to work on the effect of that, both linking emergency measure with uh, with long term social protection, and and between donors and operators and, and governments, there is still a, a lot to do. Uh, I'll stop there, maybe, but I, I'd be happy to uh, to reply to, uh, to any question you may have. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Cyprien. It's a long-standing call to really um, address all dimensions of fragility um, at the same time. So, so we, we even CSOs have this call um, for all development cooperation providers, and it's now more than ever that we need to really push for for this so that uh, and, our, and make our voices really heard you know, by all stakeholders. So Cyprian talked about uh, social protection and inequalities, and their next speaker might be able to expound on this. So Professor James Goodman is the chairperson of Aidwatch Australia. He conducts research on global politics, social, cultural change, and climate justice, and is an associate professor in social and political sciences at the University of Technology, Sydney. He draws from a disciplinary background in political sociology, international relations, political economy, and political geography, and has led several large collaborative research projects. So Professor James, go on.
4: Thank you so much, Sarah, um, and thank you other speakers as well. Um, I'll uh, be um, talking about something a little bit different from what's been talked about so far. Um, Just three main aspects uh, over the uh, ten minutes or so I've got. Um, One um, looking at the um, global truce debate and uh, optimistic efforts to overcome conflict uh, in the context of COVID. Uh, secondly, uh, looking at uh, some of the uh, emerging themes for state power, for the role of the state and its relations to society in in the COVID crisis. These are broader themes, which I think are an important part of the background. And then returning to the question of conflict about new agendas in conflict, the extent to which uh, the crisis is politicizing uh, aspects of conflicts, uh, making possible things uh, that, uh, putting things on the agenda in in new ways. So in that respect, as you might gather, I'm taking, attempting to take a slightly more uh, optimistic uh, view of of what is happening. So just first of all, uh, in terms of the, Uh, global truce debate Uh, it's only a month or so of course since uh, the World Health Organization declared the pandemic and then soon after uh, the United Nations called for a global ceasefire uh, a global truce as it's come to be called and it's been mentioned that this truce hasn't emerged in a number of places but apparently uh, uh, in several parts of the world and 12 uh, 12 cases at least uh, there's been a positive response to that call and following this of course as we'll be aware um, there's been a proposal for a uh, Security Council resolution putting this into the UN process from France and um, which has highlighted as, as, as some of as everyone is probably aware has ha- highlighted uh, the US and Russia's commitment, continued commitment, to uh, warmongering, their desire to block uh, such a resolution, although that may be overcome. So here we have a process that has politicized uh, military interventions by the dominant powers in a new way. Um, And in this context of this debate, there was a very interesting intervention even by uh, the Pope uh this really demonstrates the extent to which this agenda can spill over and cascade to help us to challenge uh, wider injustices, of course, uh, challenging the uh, uh the structural inequalities exposed by the COVID virus, but also calling it's called for an end to sanctions, an end to the arms manufacturer industry, uh reorienting that industry to social needs and particularly health, as opposed to war. Uh, and cancelling a debt. So all of a sudden, these kinds of demands start to be put at the international level. Whether or not they gain any traction is another question, but they are, you know, entering the agenda in a new way. I think this is important, uh, particularly in terms of how this reframes conflicts on the ground. So the second thing I wanted to briefly talk about was um, some of these themes, some of the background themes which have already been mentioned to some extent. Of course, COVID exposes structural inequalities, but I think very importantly, it also creates new vulnerabilities, new threats for elites. I think it's very telling uh, that uh, the global elites didn't take the COVID virus seriously until it left China and entered Italy, until it started to hit the heartland um, then it became a global crisis uh, for the elites. So I think that's a very important thing to remember, because uh, this uh, obviously is a health threat for them personally, but it's also a health threat for their. It's a threat to their own legitimacy. And in this context, uh, this common enemy is is often rhetorically defined as, as we've heard, is an equalizing uh, enemy requires or demands common action to meet common needs uh, in a context where, of course, the private sector has no capacity to provide any of those needs. So just by the by, you know, we can say goodbye to the notion of the private sector as as delivering development and as a vehicle for aid. It was always nonsense, of course, but what this has done, of course, is to affirm the centrality of the state uh in providing common needs the legitimacy of the state is transformed the role of the state is transformed um, of course that involves new state powers new security new powers for security services but it also entails new uh, challenges in order to maintain state legitimacy in the context of the failure of the state in many cases to address what is uh, uh, such a threat so um, a new basis for state power and legitimacy perhaps uh, and then thirdly the last thing i wanted to briefly touch on was does this and this is a question really i haven't got the answers to this but does this bring new agendas for conflicts on the ground does this allow a new momentum to overcome the injustices that are driving those conflicts on the ground um does it provide new ways to politicize to question some of the causes of those conflicts and i think you know we could think break just off the top of our heads we could think of a few of these in terms of military aid does it allow us to challenge the way the us for instance distributes its military aid around the world um, to sites of conflict um does it allow us to challenge sanctions for instance, on Iran and blockades, uh, for instance, in Palestine, in Kashmir. Does it allow us to uh, argue for the release of prisoners, political prisoners held, for instance, in Palestine, uh, held uh, in so many other parts of the world, in mass holding centers that are vulnerable to the COVID virus? does it allow us to make arguments for armed groups on the ground that are de facto governing authorities to participate, to take responsibilities in attacking, in dealing with COVID. And I think that's happening already, apparently in many parts of the world, This is already happening where those armed groups, insurgents, are actually taking on these responsibilities. And we could probably think of many other aspects. Um, I'm not saying that, that, that this, Offers an agenda for overcoming these conflicts. I'm saying that it perhaps changes the terms of these conflicts, allows certain things to, certain claims, arguments to be made which couldn't be made before, uh, and shakes the legitimacy of the uh, powers, of those that hold power who are exercising repression, shakes their legitimacy, uh, and and alters, alters the character of those conflicts on the ground. Uh, so there you are, a proposition. <laughs> Thanks.
1: Thank you so much, Professor James. That was quite a handful. Um, he, posts us, he posts questions no, that uh, have CSOs have been um, really calling for. For example, the reversal of um, uh, militarization, or the use of uh, aid for uh, military purposes—that's very, very specific in Asia Pacific. Um, also, of sanctions and blockades, and these are highlighted in this crisis. So, uh, these uh, problems, issues, or uh, these inequalities, we can perhaps maybe uh, help solve for um, on with with international solidarity. And I hope that our next speaker. Uh, May Mackey will be able to tell us more about how CSOs could uh, come together and advance the call for international cooperation. So May is a Research and Program Officer at the Arab NGO Network for Development, or ANND, based in Lebanon. Her work is mainly focused on civic space and development cooperation. She is also part of the MENA Regional Secretariat for the CSO Partnership for Development Effectiveness and Reality of Aid Asia-Pacific. So, May? Yes, thank
5: you. Okay, so uh, let me first start by highlighting uh, the global character of this crisis. So uh, this crisis does not only hit developed nations, but also developing nations. However, um, while the developed nations might have the ability to mobilize trillions of, for example, for the G20 stimulus, uh, poor nations uh, might not have uh, the ability to do the same. So what we know so far is that developing countries um, will be hit the hardest, but we also know that solving uh, this crisis in one part of the world will not solve the whole problem, uh, which should eventually lead us to think about equality, uh, justice and fair distribution. So normally, uh, no wonder there's been, um, uh, aid has been central to all the debates of this crisis. So there is obviously some need for outsourcing. Uh, We've seen the UN speaking of a Marshall Plan, the IMF speaking of some debt relief, etc. So, um, but but if we look at the reality on the ground, so we have the developing countries uh, financing gap estimated by UNCTAD to uh, two to three trillion dollars within the next two years. Um we, we have seen that debt relief and cancellation is still not enough. Uh, debt relief is still a very insignificant um, a part of ODA. Um, ODA numbers are no are nowhere near where they should be, uh, according to the OECD numbers. Um, and of course, most of the World Bank and IMF um, funding is still through loans, not grants, which uh, very much contradicts the concept of solidarity. Um, also, if you want to speak uh, in terms of development cooperation and aid effectiveness uh, and the development model that is being promoted. So uh, now we see a development model that is focused on private sector, where specifically in this crisis, the public sector has shown more flexibility and more efficiency and um, of course more uh, responsiveness uh, to the people's needs um, in response to this crisis. Um, so uh, no, and now more than ever, Uh, there is a need to speak of the importance of building and strengthening national systems um, as they have shown to be the prerequisite for efficiency and durability. So uh, this is what we have been speaking about uh, in um, uh, development cooperation uh, principles uh, using uh, using national systems and as uh, for example Erwin mentioned uh, before um, localizing aid as well um, we've been speaking about this a lot in the aid effectiveness um, debates as well. As for some of us, uh, we are coming from countries um, where um, there has been already socio-economic crisis. Um, we have been witnessing a lot of social movements, uh, a wide, um, uh, wide waves of protests. So what does this mean for us? and how will uh, COVID impact these social movements and these uh, already existing uh, socioeconomic crises? Uh, so for the Arab region, uh, some of you might know uh, that we have been witnessing uh, something what looks like a new version of the Arab Spring uh, since 2019. So we have seen uh, massive protests in Lebanon and Iraq, um, in Algeria, and Sudan, even in countries like Jordan and Egypt, we have witnessed some protests. Uh, this is of course very relevant also to elsewhere uh, in the world, um, such as Hong Kong uh, and Chile and even parts of Europe. Um, so Uh, As we have seen, most of the states have took the total lockdown as uh, the most feasible and the easiest response, maybe, uh, as opposed to other possible responses such as mass testing or maybe um, uh, quarantining people who are uh, most at risk, Um, but also we've seen that, uh, that this response has allowed states Uh, to take advantage of these measures uh, to exert more control um, uh, to implement uh, for example states of emergency and most importantly it has allowed them to hide the outcome of uh, the the failed health uh, health policy. Um, So um, with with this um, I mean the Arab NGO Network for Development uh, is already involved in monitoring uh, civic space so what we have seen during this, uh, this whole lockdown is an increase uh, in the shrinking civic space. Um, for example, we have seen in Lebanon and Algeria um, harassment of activists, um, arrests of activists. Uh, in countries such as Egypt, we have seen um, issuing um, laws that punish uh, people who um, uh, quote-unquote spread rumors So um, uh, it is obvious that the states have been taking advantage of the lockdown measures uh, to even uh, 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 for a crackdown on uh, civil liberties, for an additional crackdown actually on civil uh, liberties. Um, However, we we need also to be clear that when we speak of a shrinking civic uh, space that does not necessarily have an impact on uh, the social movements. And specifically from the experience of the Arab region we have seen uh, movements uh, coming out even in uh, at times where civic space is most shrinking so um, there is really a weak correlation between um, a shrinking civic space and uh, an impact on the social movements in fact what we can see is a growing frustration today with the economic and social policies Um, of course this has been exacerbated with the the corona impact uh, the, the social and economic impact Um, We have even, amid uh, amid this whole um, uh, lockdown, we have seen protests um, uh, such as in Iraq, uh, in Lebanon, Uh, we have also seen um, uh, protests of specific groups of workers uh, in all parts of the world. uh, maybe, uh, so we have seen health workers, we have seen delivery workers uh, protesting for their rights, f- further exposing um, uh, the policies of uh, of their states. And uh, we have also seen, of course, an increase in virtual activism. So um, what I would like to, uh, to uh, the conclusion I would like to reach from this is that evidence today it, um, suggests mainly that uh, these whole measures will have limited impact on stifling the, op- uh, the opposition movements. Um of course we have been um, hearing a lot about uh, the shock doctrine and maybe trying to pass um, some policies that are unpopular uh, through this whole crisis Uh, but so far what we see uh, the the evidence we have so far tells us that these movements have created a new reality so uh, states have entered the lockdown with um, with people more cynical than ever uh, about the, the state uh, policies and about inequalities and injustices, um, so there is uh, a high probability that this lockdown um, will be increasing the public discontent, um, and um, well social movements are working virtually now, but we need to, uh, to also expect a wide movement uh, post-Corona. Uh, people, um, if we listen to uh, to activists uh, uh, in the Arab region, uh, people are preparing themselves uh, for an even um, uh, more violent or, or let's say, a stronger uh, wave of protests after the the Corona lockdown is over. Um, so, of course, the, um, which is going to bring uh, more instability to the region. Uh, so this should tell us one thing, that um, uh, this will only be solved by addressing inequality in a proper manner. And um, I think this is the main opportunity that we have now with um, uh, f- from this pandemic, uh, maybe to address inequalities uh, under the pressure of social movements, of course. Thank you.
1: Thank you, May. Um, that is very... Um, optimistic to hear, you know, that um, even when civic space is um, shrinking or criminalized, um, social movements will, will grow you know, out of the growing frustration of the masses also. So thank you so much to our panelists. Uh, I'll just be- make a quick recap of what they've said, and let's move on to the uh, Q&A session for your comments and questions. I think we ended in a great note with um, with May's um, insight, uh, but we started, of course, setting the tone on how humanitarian responders are also affected by uh, by this crisis and how it's um, this crisis is weakening their response, no? When it is most important, um, and then we moved on to the OECD to and Fab discussing about uh, the inequalities on income, poverty, on livelihood. And this should be one of the main um, focus of our development cooperation providers uh, in their response to the crisis. Um, and then we also talked about uh, militarization, um, military aid, sanctions, and blockade that exacerbate you know, the, this, this global crisis. Um, but of course, um, and also to add to military aid, we have the uh, failure of our state and also the um, failure of private sector delivery of aid and development. No? So in, in CSO language, we call that the corporate capture of development, which is, which is, as we now know, not working and will not be working in the future. So we really need to reshape the our response so that it will be more people-oriented, not people-focused, and uh, democratic. So, of course, as May said, uh, CSOs really need to come together and uh, launch massive protests, whether it's online or v- virtual, or uh, on the streets after this crisis. When all, when when we're all safe and sound to go out. So, yeah, um, over to you, Nat, for some of the questions. So we've had a few questions come through,
0: which is really great. So I guess it's just to throw it to the panelists, um, maybe we could um, start with you, Supreme, with this first question here from um, Arthi. Um, in the past few years, there has been a lot of emphasis on the humanitarian development peace nexus. What are the immediate implications of COVID on the nexus approaches by humanitarian actors?
3: Thank you. Well, I mean, the um, the, the nexus is not uh, is not a thing. It, it's it's an approach to, uh, to 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 support good programming and good engagement in uh, in uh, in any context or in fragile or conflict affected context. So even in a in a covid nineteen uh, overall context the, um, the the nexus approach is still relevant. Nexus approach is about know what you want to do, what do you want to achieve in a particular area in a particular country it depends where where you stand. And then to make sure that you build your program based on your uh on the added value of each instrument, if you want. So uh some uh, some uh, some elements will definitely be just for humanitarian to respond. Um but you have to uh you have to, uh, to to have a long long site um programming if you want. And I was talking about the uh, the link between cash, uh, emergency cash. Um, in, in humanitarian aid, uh, definitely it can be linked to, uh, to social protection, um, and, 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 and this way, is a, the way you program your aid is a nexus uh, approach, it's, it's relevant everywhere, I would say.
0: Thanks, Cyprien, for that. We have a question here from Beverly. So Beverly's question um, is uh, the alarming, alarming that several states respond to the COVID-19 through oppressive or militarist measures rather than medical solutions, like Philippines, India, Kenya, and Myanmar. In the absence of work and aid, many are forced to defy lockdown and quarantine. Uh, the enabling environment for CSOs have shrunk to an alarming state. States also enact laws and policies that curtail civil liberties. How should aid respond to this situation? Um, maybe we could throw this to you, Erwin.
2: Uh, well, usually I just, I just look and, and see all the bad things happening and comment about that. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's certainly something that I'm, I'm sure every one of us have noticed. Um, uh, you know, most of our contributors, um, the journalists who write for us, are freelancers, and, and one has recently come into trouble with something she wrote unrelated to coronavirus. Um, or something she photographed um, and but you know it's part of these these growing growing crackdowns in terms of how aid um, you know the aid sector should respond it's you know I'm not sure if I have any insight into that um, you know it is part of the the uh, it, it differs everywhere but there's always these discussions that take place behind closed doors I would argue that um, in in many countries they aren't that effective I wonder if some of the other um, panelists have an idea on how you know in an, even in normal circumstances, um, uh, you know you can get around sort of government-led blockades or government-led restrictions, um, and still maintain doing your work.
5: James or May, were you interested in responding to that question? Yes. So I, I just like to add that. Um, um, and maybe the, the key here is um, the, uh, localizing aid, so um, it, it is more relevant now than ever. Uh, we need to work on, um, uh, on um, strengthening and on empowering the local organizations. Uh, I, think, um, I think this should be a starting point f- uh, for aid. Uh, and not just, um, uh, I mean, not, not just speaking of uh, cash flows and um, emergency cash for uh, uh, for developing states. Uh, we need also um, uh, to ask what kind, um, what kind of aid or what kind of models um, or how is this uh, uh, going to be changed? Uh, are we uh, investing in the public sector? Um, are we um, uh, empowering the, the local organizations and the civil society to, uh, to be part of the um, uh, democratic uh, process? Um, and when we want to speak uh, of the donors uh, let's not um, exclude also the international financial institutions a lot of the policies implemented by the international financial institutions and um, the loans not the cash that is being uh, that are being granted to two countries um, civil society is being excluded from whatever negotiations and whatever um, uh, processes uh, are going on between uh, these institutions and the states um, so, so we also need, uh, we need to focus on this, um, so, since sometimes we see that these institutions are replicating um, what the state is doing in excluding the marginalized people and the civil society.
4: Yeah, I think it's a um, fascinating question, I think it's difficult to answer in the immediate context, uh, other than through that, I think it's a very useful response around you know, the localizing agenda, which has been mentioned as being a long, long argued for long called for. Um, uh, there may also that maybe should also be combined with a focus on uh, on health and so- health and social protection on on people's needs. Uh, particularly a move away from user fees for the basic, you know, for education, for health and so on, which has been part of the orthodoxy increasingly uh, obviously a move away from reliance on the private sector but also a move away from uh, a, a kind of development model that focuses on um on the formal sector and the export sector and maybe a shift to a focus on the informal sector and as i say social protection so i think you know it, it does put call into question put into question uh, the COVID crisis does put into question the entire so-called new paradigm for ODA, uh, which we've been you know, hitched to for the last decade or so. Uh, and I really do think, uh, you know, obviously the public sector is at the centre of that, but also the civil societies and communities and so on. And I think it's quite a different uh, notion of what development can be or should be uh, uh, in the context of COVID, particularly on exports. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Thanks, James. Thanks, May. Um, I might move to uh, another question, which um, is around frontline responders. Um, So, frontline responders are calling for long term and flexible financing to allow them to pivot their responses as needs change on the ground and address the pandemic's long term impacts. Direct funding to frontline responders would increase the effectiveness of the response. So, I guess it's sort of. It's going along with what we've been talking about. Do you see a shift towards this approach from donors um, and how to avert the risk of spike in investments and health responses followed by a return to normal once COVID-19 will be no longer considered a priority?
2: I I might just add on on the sort of direct funding um, issue, you know, that's obviously one of the biggest technical issues facing, you know, local organisations is where the money comes from. Um, I think initially it does seem like the... Pro, the grand promises of the, this $2 billion appeal um, in terms of using local responders and, and having them lead is not necessarily uh, um, materializing in, in actual change. I think a lot of it, it, it right now, it looks like it could uh, replicate or reinforce this model of the INGOs, international NGOs as being middlemen or you know, um, where the money passes through direct from donors and then it gets dispersed by them. Um, So right now, I I don't really see that changing, Um, but I think at the same time, what I've heard from a few organizations and, and a few people in the donor community is there is this willingness to try new things and, you know, that's a big step between trying new things and being more flexible and actually doing those things but you know perhaps more more so than in the past and what's a very conservative environment you know donor international donors um there is a possibility that uh, you know maybe something might stick we'll try out this this model of funding with the with you know a particular organization but i think right now there is a danger that it could go both ways where it would reinforce you know the existing sort of blockades that have prevented more direct funding up until now
3: Can I add something maybe on, on this point we have to um, not to forget that uh, from from the international donors, uh, direct funding is not a natural thing. Donors are not built; it's not designed to uh, to pass to transfer money from uh, or public money uh, from uh, from uh, from the taxpayers uh, to uh, to local organization. And and the trends, um, even even since the uh, the grand bargain and the uh, world humanitarian summit has not been too promising. Um, you have increasing due diligence um, and check and balances from many donors since then, even from um, international NGOs. Um, so This will not go away um, in a context where uh, domestically from, from donor countries, um, they enter into economic recession. So the, the, the pressure on ODA and, and probably the scrutiny on ODA will, uh, will, will increase. So we have to, uh, to, to understand that the way it works from a donor perspective, but also take some opportunities because you have new mechanism um, that, that and, and even donors are quite keen to, to try and test as, as you've just said, um, new things, but, but we shouldn't be too optimistic on, on the direct funding. Um, the COVID will not dramatically change things because it will not change the way donors are organized.
0: Um, so let's move on to another question. Um, and there's a couple of people who sort of asked along this line. Um, so you know humanitarian response is needed, especially during these times, but what are the structural macro responses that should happen in order to recover better? And what role for international cooperation? Um, and sort of adhere to that question is the role of international cooperation and aid on economic stimulus and measures to ensure decent jobs post-pandemic in particular in states under conflict and
4: fragility? It's a huge agenda uh, (laughs) um, for decent jobs after COVID, in the context of what is suggested to be uh, um, the deepest depression uh, we've had um, since the last depression (laughs) uh, in the early part of the 20th century. It it is going to be absolutely critical uh in this context for there to be um solidarity and as societies come out of the covid um lockdowns uh for movements to uh, really mobilize around some of the agendas that are emerging in the context of this lockdown i must say what is quite incredible in the last month or so is just to see that happening is is to see uh the kinds of discussions that people are having now uh about what kind of model what kind of uh, models are necessary in the context of a failing global private sector. Uh, and, and what models are possible, uh, uh, which goes to this question of, um, of decent jobs, of, uh, of decent livelihood, I think would be another way to put it. And I, and I really think the agendas are now uh, the, the um, it's really open for us to move on some of these and, and it was well, incumbent on us actually to, to put some, you know, clear proposals out there in terms of what is possible, what is necessary in the context of what will be, um, uh, as I say, a, a state failing to or unable to enable um, uh, economic um, survival for many of us. Yeah.
0: Um, this is probably, I mean, it's an important question. So it'd be really great to get a response from um, all the panelists. Um, I was wondering, May, if you'd like to respond.
5: Um, I'm not sure what to add on um, on the question of international development uh, and in countries um, and fragility. Uh, I mean, uh, of course, and uh, and this uh, and this. Um, for this question, I, I can't but think in the context of the region. Um, so um, the countries in the region have been hit uh, a lot by the crisis. Um, some of the countries, we still don't know uh, how much exactly is the um, the effect of the, of the corona because um, the, there are very limited capacities. I mean, we're sure there's a problem. But in countries like Yemen, for example, um, uh, there is no public health system, um, so, so th- there is nothing more important now than the international cooperation. And as I said before, um, aid can be central in this uh, in this context because you, you can't anymore generate uh, resources from within uh, the country. So, uh,
0: Cyprian.
3: Yeah. <clears throat> so on on um, on the overall thing, uh, I think that. Um, Covid, we, we will not dramatically change the way development cooperation uh, cooperation is being done. Um, we will have different ways to approach it. Uh, you have a lot of pressure for 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 private sector to uh, to engage, but I mean the private sector is not is not here to uh, to, to develop the countries. They are not here for that. Um, what international cooperation is is uh, is useful for is to create or to help countries to create the uh, the environment where where uh, private sector and the economy can thrive and, and develop. Um, so it's it's maybe through that that you can uh, you can work on a, on a decent job it, it's just to create the uh, um, to, to create the environment uh, on, on uh, helping in. in uh, Labor laws, or, or create all the aspects that prevent uh, decent job to uh, to to, uh, to to be available. Uh, but the private sector itself is is born enough to uh, that doesn't need to push if there is something to do. The private sector will will do it by itself. Um, but so the, uh, the the aim of the uh, international cooperation, uh, whether it's after or before the crisis, uh, will will be to help countries. Uh, but, but international cooperation has to help countries, a, a, a process that has to come from, from within. It's, it's, we cannot force international cooperation, cannot create, uh, cannot, um, uh, cannot change many things if there is not internally a process um, that, that, uh, that goes on the right way. And this is where you make the link with the civil society or, or with all the forces within the country. Um, to create that, um, that atmosphere and environment. The, uh, the international cooperation uh, can only help a process that, that has to come from, from within. It's
2: quite, uh, only it will not change after the COVID. Erwin. Um, I don't know if I have anything intelligent to add on that, unfortunately. You know, I think the, the it is the, the kind of rights crackdowns against it in, in, in different parts of the world right now are, are very interesting to watch. Um, and uh, I think, you know, in, in the end, they, they do exacerbate some of the problems that we've been talking about here um, in terms of actual solutions or how to, how to respond in the short term. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm an observer as much as anything here.
0: So the last question is from uh, Lee Tan um, and also offers a suggestion. <laughs> well, like maybe what we could do from this, which is great. So Lee said, um, given that most donor governments now incurring massive debts, while the fragility and frequency and severity of disasters and even the pandemic itself for the global south are expected to rise and worsen. Can we come to some agreement down the line as to how best to respond, advocate, or what to prioritise in light of the evolving geopolitical economic dynamic?" Lee suggests that this would be a good position paper um, and could include, you know, the anti-democratic
3: moves by by certain governments.
0: Cynthia?
3: Um, yeah, it's not an easy one. Um, maybe on, on debt. Yeah. Um, debt. <clears throat> before, before the crisis, debt was getting unsustainable for, for many of the most fragile states. Um, you know that um, some countries were, um, were taking debt after one after the other and could not have difficulty to, to repay um, so, so it will only increase, and, and this is why the G20 uh, worked on this moratorium on, on debt, uh, debt repayment. Um, so, so far, it's not about uh, cancelling debt, um, but but um, postponing any uh, repayment. So, we, there will be plenty of discussion about that uh, in the coming uh, weeks and and, uh, and months and years. So, it's not over. Um, but I, I guess there is a there is a, a, a real um, understanding that, that that the debt burden is unsustainable and even more. Um, but again, uh, again, it, it, all all debt cancellation uh, has to be uh, seen in in the context of uh, of uh, of economic. Uh, recession uh, in, in, uh, in London's country. So it's uh, you have to sell that to your own public uh, as well, it, it won't be easy for, for the uh, main countries to do that. So this was just my point on, on the debt issue. Uh, James? Yeah, I would, I would say
4: definitely um, an agenda around um, visions post vision the visions for society post post COVID uh, linked to movement building and especially around I mean, it has been mentioned, uh, it hasn't really been mentioned yet, but the whole agenda around um, the Green New Deal, which relates to that other crisis, which we haven't mentioned, um, of climate, and also relates to the Decent Jobs agenda, expanding responsibilities of the state under COVID uh, that we are seeing in some countries, countries, countries becoming responsible for so the rations, forms of livelihood, ensuring forms of um, income that they simply refused to provide for in the past, maybe the kernel, maybe the germ of, a, of a, a new type of agenda centered around meeting people's needs rather than serving the market of course, linked to movement demands around trade union demands, especially around jobs, but also the wider environmental agenda um, and you can see sort of aspects of that starting to emerge uh, in actual state policy, as well as in <laughs> in the imagination of movement activists at the moment. And I think that's that's really what's desperately needed. I think uh, that kind of building a vision for alternatives into the future uh, with movements, uh, based on enabling those movements to build into the future. I think will be absolutely critical because, of course, the other side in this game are actively uh, developing their own agendas. An opportunity uh, for us is also an opportunity for them. Uh, I are absolutely certain that's underway. So I, I think it's I think we should be uh, mindful of that and uh, and of and of the possibilities that are and I have obviously been emphasising this throughout the the possibilities that are emerging uh, that that can enable us to um, you know make. Make make good that kind of that, that kind of process. Make good those kind of visions
2: into the future.
0: And Erwin,
2: I just think it's it's um, it'll be interesting to see um, what kind of pushes there are for um, you know when this is all over um, addressing some of the issues that were existing before now, especially when it comes to to cross border issues. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about you know labor migration. Um, I'm thinking about climate change, obviously, which we somehow have gone several weeks without mentioning it seems like which, <laughs> um and and how you know the changes that we've made now will impact our willingness to work on these other uh issues that were very much at a standstill to to some degree um but again that's not saying anything that's what i'm kind of interested in looking at in the future
0: great um okay i think we pretty much come to the end of the webinar sarah i don't know if there's any kind of final words you'd like to say before we close off
1: um, well, just thank you to everyone who attended and stayed. Um, this is a good avenue for uh, different organizations or individuals to um, discuss specific issues on aid and development cooperation. And uh, we hope to continue this series. And we'll also be releasing or emailing you um, the YouTube link and um, maybe also summary of what uh, insights our speakers have. They are very, very um, crucial insights and questions. Thank you.
0: Um, and just to add, if you had any further questions or and, and even to specific um, panelists, um, you can email us atalks at gmail.com email. So just feel free to email us with any follow-up or any suggestions and also to take the survey at the end of this webinar. So We can keep improving on this. This is new for us, Um, this new world we're in, and we're (laughs) becoming even more and more virtual. Um, But we really want to use this platform to um, have other partners come on and host. Um, We're really open to suggestions in terms of what future webinars could look like and the things that they could be centered around. Um, The one that we can most likely have next next month, sorry, will be around debt, so around this sort of campaign, where there's actually been a call to to cancel debt in the Great South. So we'll be keeping you informed about that um, and hopefully have a couple of our partners um, involved in that as well. So thank you so much to May, to Cyprian, to James and to Erwin for participating in our first webinar. Um, and thank you to all the participants. And, yeah, we hope to see you at the next one in a month. Thank you for listening to Aid Talks, co-hosted by Reality of Aid and AidWatch. To get in touch, email us at atalks at gmail dot com.